Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Schein. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Schein, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McLennan Agency and the host of Chatting Cyber. Um, today's cyber celebrity is Peter Halperin. Peter, thanks for joining. Never been called a celebrity before, so uh, this is a very exciting moment for me and all the other nerds out there. Well, this is going to be very exciting for all of our listeners as well. We're glad to have you on the show and really going to get, dive down deep into some of the, the challenges that are, are facing our insureds today. Um, so, Peter, before we get started, I mean, how did you get into advising uh, clients really around uh, cyber insurance, privacy law, uh, things of that nature? Sure. Thanks, Mark. And as I said, in addition to uh, being called a celebrity, uh, I, I feel like I'm in the presence of a celebrity being uh, on this podcast. This is uh, very, very exciting for me. Um, you know, I, I'm a lawyer. I'm an insurance lawyer. I, I represent clients who have issues generally with claims. Um, I, I'm doing more and more, particularly on the cyber side, advising on the front end on, on policy language, which is not something that I traditionally did. Um, but generally, it's advising on claims. And um, because I've worked and I tend to work with kind of larger companies with large deductibles, it also tends to be that the problems that I see are those that are large, systemic, sometimes unexpected, um, and it tends to come in waves and trends. So, you know, when I, when I started, it was all about the financial crisis and E&O and D&O. And then um, as time evolved, I started to see more and more arising on the social engineering front. Um, and clients were looking for coverage under crime policies for you know, various uh, business email compromise and other schemes. Um, that started to evolve maybe two or three years ago into actual claims arising under cyber policies. And, and at that point, I started to see more and more from clients, particularly on ransomware claims, saying, here's what's happening with my insurer. Here's the reservation of rights. Here's the investigation that they're undertaking. Um, can you help advise me through that process? And so um, my work for them has kind of evolved, and as we'll talk about more later, doing more and more in the, in the ransomware space. Um, there are still crime claims that come up in the computer context. There's a recent decision in G&G Oil, which we'll also get to. Um, but I, I think that uh, by and large, it's just been that this is what is affecting big businesses, and this is where they need help. Sure. So, so Peter, I mean, you know, for such a young individual, you're so accomplished. I mean, you know, professor, pr professor at Cordoza, he tell us a little bit about what you've done, because I know that, you know, you, you've really been an impactful mentor to many folks, taking them on some international trips and things like that. Yeah. Um, so in, in addition to being an insurance nerd, uh, I'm also a nerd generally, but, but specifically, I'm also an arbitration nerd. Um, and for those listeners who are, are not well-versed, you know, arbitration is just an alternative means of handling disputes. It's basically like private court. Um, and I think for sophisticated entities, especially in the cyber context, by the way, that can be a really good way to resolve disputes. And the, the basic background there is, while insureds generally do not prefer to be in arbitration, it's behind closed doors, you don't get a jury, you know, things aren't out in the public, there's no precedent. Um, the main benefit of it is that it's confidential. And you also get to choose the people to, who resolve your dispute. So if you want an arbitrator who is a highly technical background, someone who really knows cyber issues, maybe they 
worked in, in tech before they became a lawyer or something like that, um, you can get that person. And you also have confidentiality, so you don't have to talk about the embarrassing you know, cyber breach or security lapse or whatever else happened. So um, I, I'm digressing a bit, but arbitration can be a really good place for, for cyber disputes. Um, so what I do is um, you know, I teach international arbitration at Cardozo, so that's just arbitration on a global scale. Um, and in addition to teaching, I also write, you know, law review articles and other academic pieces about different areas of arbitration. And then um, it, it's something that I really, really enjoy. Um, I also coach the MOOC arbitration team, international arbitration team. So every year um, I take a group of five students to Vienna and uh, we enjoy a competition with uh, 400 other schools. It's getting bigger and bigger every year. Thousands and thousands of arbitrators and students and you know, onlookers come and, and join these, um, this competition. And uh, unfortunately, due to the pandemic, it's, it was virtual this year. Um, it ended up being virtual at the last minute last year because the mood is always right before Easter. And uh, it was around March, early March, when they decided to cancel last year. So uh, I'm hoping to get back to Vienna next year. I'm hoping to, you know, raise my cholesterol with some sausages and whatnot and, uh, you know, have some, some beers and some good coffee. But uh, unfortunately, it uh, just didn't happen this year. Sure. So, so let's get back to what you're doing um, from a legal perspective and how you're advising clients. Um, you know, you're, you're really into the weeds. You're helping clients fill out applications. You're getting into complex claims. What are some of the challenges that clients are coming to you and talking to you about in, in 2021? Yeah, I would say on the application side, uh, I have not yet been asked to, to do that. It's more I've been asked to take a look at wording. Um, I had a, a very large you know, household name client come to me in the middle of the pandemic to say, you know, here's a scenario. If we had a, um, a phishing scheme and someone clicked on an email and then the you know, th threat actors were able to access our systems and we had a, a BI loss, you know, how much coverage would we have? Or if they were to get into the um, our cloud provider, you know, would we have coverage for that? And what do we need to think about? Um, do we need to change our contracts with our our cloud providers or other e-discovery vendors to account for insurance issues? Um, that's mostly what I, I'm seeing on the front end. And then more and more, I'm getting asked, "Hey, is this wording okay?" Um, which I I defer to you, Mark, and I defer to the experts on you know what the wording should be. And the other key question of how much does it cost to change the wording? Um, I can't answer any of that. But on the claim side, more and more of what I'm seeing is moving away from these business email compromise crime schemes and moving deeper and deeper into ransomware. And really, how much coverage is available for a ransomware attack under a cyber policy? And I think in light of this GNG oil case, I was already asked by a client, how much coverage is available to me under a crime policy? So um, definitely interesting, evolving area. And one of the things that I love about the area is when I get a call from a client, who says, hey, I just got an attack, you know, here's my cyber policy. I say, okay, let me see all of your other policies, you know, and we found coverage for people under property policies, you know, kidnap and ransom policies, DNO policies, you know, it, it really depends on what the facts are and, and also what the effects are. You know, one, one of the other things that's interesting about this space too is, you know, you and I were talking years ago when part 500 came out and DFS started more closely looking into what businesses are doing at the executive level when it comes to cyber threats. But now we've already had you know, DFS enforcement actions. I believe we've had two actions so far. And following the first action against the uh, first American insurance company, we then had a shareholder derivative suit, which would you know, trigger DNO coverage. So th this thing seems to be spiraling in a lot of 
of different directions. And um, you know, from a, a nerd perspective, it's interesting to watch. Um, but I, I think it's also interesting to see how both the insurance coverage that's available evolves and how those policies changed, and also the mindsets of businesses. It seems like businesses are really taking cyber seriously in a way that maybe even two years ago, they weren't before. You know, Peter, I couldn't agree with you more. It seems like the holistic coordination of making sure that your DNO is coordinated with your cyber, that's coordinated with your crime, is be and your EPLI is becoming more and more uh, uh, ever, ever increasingly important given the fact that some of these claims are becoming so complex and we're seeing things like BIPA liability, now biometric liability, New York State has the idea of they're possibly, you know, uh, going to pass the uh, similar laws to Chicago. And we think about how it's going to respond and really where the coverage may fall. And really when we think about, you know, from a cyber perspective, we have that data breach trigger that we still need to um, um, get over from a, a, um, a privacy standpoint in order to get coverage to respond. And then from an employment practices liability standpoint, you know, really, are they collecting the information in a secure manner? Or is there a wrongful collection of information? And I don't think the employment practices liability, you know, uh, underwriters really want to pick up this exposure anymore. So it's just, just, just to your point, when we think about that holistic coordination, I, I couldn't agree with your points, you know, anymore. Um, you had mentioned G&G Oil a few times. Can you tell us about that decision? Yeah, sorry, just before you go there, though, on the, on the BIPA piece, which I think is kind of interesting, um, there was a coverage battle between uh, McDonald's and, and their, their GL carrier over defense cost coverage. Um, and I think that case settled uh, a little bit earlier this week, or maybe it was last week. Um, so, you know, the, the, again, it, it, the, the tentacles of these cyber issues and where they pop up, um, I think, are, are uh, unlimited. And you know what's interesting too is I feel like a year or so ago, and maybe it was right before the pandemic, there was all this talk about silent cyber and all these concerns that the carriers had about trying to make sure that somehow cyber coverage wasn't available where it wasn't intended to be. And at least as far as I'm concerned, I've seen a little bit of that, particularly out of London, but overall, I don't really think that I've seen a lot in terms of policies saying outright, you know, this is not going to cover any cyber risk you know, it's the opposite. In fact, I think that we still have those those questions. So I, I continue to put the onus as I would on the insurers to just make ex exceptionally clear where they're excluding something because that, that that's their obligation under the law. Um, but that does dovetail with G&G oil, right? So um, G&G oil is interesting. And uh, I think I just like saying G&G oil, but um, you know, th this was a, a case involving a, a ransomware attack and uh, G&G oil, the company was attacked and wanted to make a payment, make a ransom payment. Um, and they made the payment, and then they looked to their prime carrier to reimburse it. And by the way, I think the payment was like $35,000 or, or, or less. So for you know, large corporate clients, I mean, this is, this is a, a blip on the radar, but, but that's what the payment was. Um, and they didn't get coverage, carrier denied, said it was a voluntary payment, said it wasn't related to the use of a computer as is required under computer fraud coverage and a crime policy, you know, so on and so forth. Essentially, they... They made it as though you know the client just said, "Hey, here's here's the money," um, but you know, in in reality, the well, the trial court agreed with the insurer and said, "There's no coverage here." Then it went to the intermediate appellate court in Indiana, who agreed with the insurer and said, "There's no coverage here." Um, the recent decision, which uh, I believe came out last month, um, went the other way, and the Supreme Court of um, Indiana said, "In actuality, uh, we disagree." You know, summary judgment for the insurer was inappropriate um, and largely on, on two grounds. Um, one is that um, they do think that the use of a computer could have been implicated here. 
Um, and they do think that there was some measure of fraud that caused the transfer. And what's interesting about it is all of this stems from the idea that what caused the ransomware attack or what enabled the ransomware attack was actually a spear phishing campaign at the outset. And I think that's something that people forget is that very often in order for your system to be infiltrated, you know, it's not that they just go hack in and all of a sudden your ransomware appears magically, but there is some kind of penetration via spear phishing or other kind of campaign that gets them into the system. So I, I think sometimes people forget about that linkage, you know, and, and the court obviously didn't. And so, um, you know, they directed that the, the trial court proceed in accordance with, with their opinion. Um, you know, I, I think it's a game changer in a lot of ways because, you know, you wouldn't traditionally think that a ransomware payment might arise under a, a crime policy, right? You, you may not make all of those linkages, but I think going forward, um, it's certainly something to consider. And, and I view this as similar to the metadata decision a couple of years ago when, you know, it seemed like there wasn't coverage for certain risks under a crime policy, given the multitude of decisions in opposite. And then you had metadata and then all of a sudden it switched. And then of course, now when you see, you know, policies that uh, might have been responsive to metadata type losses, there are new exclusions on there and new things that are intended to either sublimit it or knock it out. Um, so I would assume that that would probably be the likely response from the industry to G&G oil, but for those policyholders with, you know, the same language right now or similar language right now, you know, there is now a new avenue that they can and should consider uh, pursuing in, in light of the decision. So um, very interesting. And as far as I know, the first of its kind in the country to really address these issues. Sure. So, so Peter, earlier on in the, the conversation, you, you were talking about the systemic type of risk that, you know, ransomware is really creating. And from an insurance perspective, I couldn't agree with you anymore. I mean, it, it's absolutely destroyed some of our carriers, P&Ls, um, you know, the profitability just really went to the toilet over the past year. Certain carriers, of course, certain other ones have done very well. Um, wanted to get an understanding of where we see the systemic risk with respects to ransomware um, from a legal perspective, because from the insurance perspective, we're seeing carriers now offer quotes with ransomware coinsurance and or sublimating uh, uh, ransomware coverage or extortion coverage uh, and or excluding it altogether. Where do you, you know, what kind of advice are you giving your clients when they're faced with these types of challenging decisions? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I haven't yet seen the, um, the co-insurance uh, pop up, um, but that's, that's an interesting kind of way, I guess, for carriers to, to deal with the issue. Um, you know, what, what I had seen traditionally, and again, I, I, you know, I'm probably dealing with the same kinds of clients as you, is very high retentions and, you know, lower limits, higher retentions. That, that seemed to be the approach that I'm seeing um, them taking, you know, and, and, and for the clients, it's a, it's a hard decision. I mean, insurance, I, I think of always with regard to anything cyber is the last resort. So, you know, number one, if you have a dollar to spend, I think there are all those charts out there that say you spend it on the defense. You spend it on network security, infrastructure security, training your employees, multi-factor authentication, et cetera. So assuming all of those things fail, that's where the insurance comes into play. And then the other issue is trying to use internal controls to limit as much as possible the extent of such an exposure. Um, but with ransomware, it's really hard. Um, and I think one of the other hard things about ransomware is, you know, given the financial devastation that it can, can wreak, you know, for a lot of clients, the idea of paying the ransom is very tempting. 
Um, but the concern, as you know, is that just because you pay the ransom, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily in the clear, right? The, the actor can still remain in your system. Your data can still be corrupted. And now, you know, dealing with OFAC and other guidance out there, you know, there's a possibility that you may be transferring money to a sanctioned actor, at which point you're now exposing yourself to additional legal liability. So, you know, all signs point to no, do not pay. But, you know, in, in real time for a client being not just a, you know, academic nerdy lawyer up in the clouds, but being a real person who thinks about clients' actual needs, that's a very hard decision. Um, it needs to be made in conjunction with law enforcement. Ideally, it's being made in conjunction with a carrier who's provided that kind of coverage and you've been able to go through your systems. But, um, you know, clients are in a tough spot. And, and one of the things that I've noticed that that's so, I think, um, uh, devastating about what these actors are doing is, you know, during the pandemic, I mean, they've really targeted healthcare organizations. They've really targeted hospitals. They've targeted ma vac vaccine manufacturers. I mean, they've really gone after the people who are most vulnerable, who really have the least amount of time to consider what is the proper course of action. Um, and that's obviously by design, but it's just so nefarious and so challenging for businesses to really navigate these issues. Again, I couldn't agree with you anymore. When we think about ransomware and what it's wreaked havoc in 2020, often we hear about businesses that may have not been doing as well over the past 365 days as they were in 2019, 2018, so on and so forth. So Peter, my, my question to you is, how does the loss in, a revenue, uh, loss in revenue at a particular organization, how does that affect the business income loss when a client is possibly facing an extortion type of demand you know, through some type of bad actor? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest thing that I'm seeing right now in terms of ransomware claims is dealing with the BI aspect. Um, knock on wood, for most of my clients, the insurers are saying, you have you know, cyber coverage, you have ransomware coverage, you know, we acknowledge that you're entitled to certain costs. Um, they provide breach response services, you know, ideally, they provide privacy counsel, all of these bells and whistles. But where the issues are emerging is really in the context of the income losses and the question of how much. Um, and increasingly, I'm seeing clients bringing in forensic accounting teams as if this is a property insurance loss. You know, the same folks who are looking at the COVID claims are now looking at ransomware BI claims. And it's the same kind of fights. You know, the, the carriers are claiming that, you know, revenues were not as the, as the client had projected or would not be as the client projected. And therefore, you know, we need to throw out the window everything that you know, had been contemplated in terms of budgeting and whatnot. And, you know, with COVID in particular, they, they are focusing on COVID and saying, okay, you know, you normally make a million dollars of revenue, you, but you are only going to make half a million this year because of COVID. So therefore your BI losses should be calculated on the basis of, you know, the COVID economy. There's a, a COVID discount, so to speak. Um, and, you know, it depends on the client. I'm seeing clients push back. I mean, one thing that's interesting about uh, COVID is while it's devastated a lot of industries like hospitality and restaurants and, you know, uh, movie theaters and, and, and things of that nature, you know, for other industries, business is booming. You know, if, if you want to get a dishwasher or something else for a home improvement project, you know, or, or new blinds, forget it, right? I mean, what you're seeing is, you know, anyone who's bored and at home and has some disposable income is redoing their kitchen, they're redoing their house, they're redoing some aspect, or, you know, a lot of people move from the city to the suburbs. And now we're starting to thankfully see a, a reverse migration, but you're, you're seeing a lot of that. And so 
taken together, there are businesses that are doing even better in light of COVID. And so, you know, part of what we're trying to explain to carriers is you have to take into account the specific situation. There's no just general economic discount that you're entitled to because of COVID. So it sounds like when there's a challenge with these kind of BI claims, really making sure that you have the right legal counsel involved, making sure that you get forensics, uh, forensic accounting involved to make sure that they're helping you dispute it, and then working with the right broker to really kind of uh, support you from a claims perspective is really kind of the best case scenario or best practices for the listeners going forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, to break down those pieces, I mean, I always think that you want to start with the broker because the broker has the relationship. And while, you know, relationships have definitely been tested through COVID on all lines, um, I, I do think that, you know, there's still that notion of, you know, COVID will end and will we'll emerge from this and people will need to work together in, in a way as they did before. And so those relationships are really important. Um, in terms of the forensic accounting piece, I mean, clients should always check their policies to see what kind of coverage they have for that. Um, you know, the more robust, the better. But, you know, I, I kind of joke that, you know, those people speak one zero zero one one zero to each other, right? Like your background. Um, and so it's important to have two people that can speak like that to each other to resolve these things. And, you know, what kind of forecasting period were you looking at going backwards and also looking forwards? You know, how do you really relate sales from one period to another? Is there seasonality? Are there all these other things that are happening? And you really need someone who is not me, who's not a lawyer to break that down. Um, and then on the coverage side, you know, I do think it's important for people to push back. Um, one of the other issues which I, I'm seeing people fight about is upgrades. You know, carriers are saying, oh, no, no, we don't, we don't pay for upgrades. You know, that, that, that's an upgrade. We don't pay for upgrades. And you have to read your policy. You know, some sections of the policy do provide coverage for new equipment, right? Some, some of them do subject to some kind of percentage or a supplement or, or something like that. Um, but beyond that, in some cases, you know, there's no other choice. You know, if you're operating a really, really old system and now you need the same equivalent services, but that old system doesn't exist, you know, obsolescence matters. And this has come up in the property insurance context. And there's case law that, that people can look to there. But the idea is, you know, it's hard for companies facing these challenges to kind of be clear eyed about what they need to do in the moment. Um, so I think that, you know, apropos of what you just said, Mark, it's really good for companies to think about getting that team in place and ready to go in the same way that they would for breach response so that they're able to deal with it when things are crazy and they're dealing with putting out a million fires. Because I, I think having the right team in place, both on the underwriting and the claim side, is essential. And, and just one other point on that, you know, I, I constantly say this to businesses, don't silo out your procurement of insurance. In other words, don't limit it to uh, risk management. You really have to bring all of the other actors to the table, be it legal, be it finance, be it operations, because especially with things like cyber risk, if everyone's not on the same page internally at the company, it's going to be very difficult when that claim arises. You know, maybe there's a vendor or someone who doesn't fall within the cyber coverage, who is the weakest link, who is part of your network and who exposes you and now you have no coverage. Um, you know, or maybe legal doesn't want, you know, I don't know, some kind of crazy English law to apply to your claim because that's not a law that they're comfortable or familiar with and they don't want to, you know, go to arbitration. Or maybe you want mediation to be an option. And it's not something that risk management or the broker are thinking about because they're not lawyers and they're, they're used to things working, not when things break down. So I think you really need to bring all the different perspectives to the table. I think diverse perspectives really help you in terms of crisis.
So, Peter, we, we've covered a tremendous amount of information today. Is, uh, yes, you know, New Yorkers who talk fast. <laughs> my, 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 my last question for you, is there anything that I, I should have asked you that we didn't address um, that you want to just discuss um, before we wrap up today? You know, I, I would just say it, it's, it's becoming a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, but it seems like because there are so many claims, carriers are very quick to bring in coverage counsel on their side. Um, and it really freaks out uh, insureds because all of a sudden you're getting a letter, you know, a 17-page reservation of rights letter from an insurer in the middle of their, you know, ransomware attack, and they're still trying to figure out what to do, and it's a little overwhelming for them. So, you know, I, I would call upon brokers and carriers to kind of work together at that outset and just keep in mind that, like, the, the client is going through a very tough situation you know, and, and really, if your intention is to be helpful to that client and, and the insurer wants to keep that relationship and have good client service, I think you really need to situate that counsel and just explain, you know, we need to do this investigation as part of our work, but our goal here is to work together with you and to try to make sure, you know, that this is as painless of a process as possible. And maybe they don't want to say that because they do ultimately want to deny the claim. But, um, you know, I, I just think casting your insured in a defensive position in the midst of a crisis is not the best thing to do for customer relations or otherwise. On that note, we'll wrap up with thanking you, Peter, for being today's cyber celebrity and coming on this show and chatting cyber with us. Love it. Take care.